Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to milwaukeemafia.com hover and simplify your jo- domain journey today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. What are we talking about today? Uh, we, we got a... Creeping we out got a, We got a mafia, man. You we know? got a mafia one. You say, and he says it's short, so... It is really short, and... Like I like this is like record short. So <laughs> so everyone like I I'm sorry if you like our like forty five minute episodes because I don't think this will be. <laughs> this one isn't gonna work out unless Eric asks just a ridiculously stupid amount of questions. Yeah, this is a really small one um, because the, the incident involved is very short, but I figured it was necessary uh, to do it because it introduces a character who. It needs to be introduced. Being um, that he's going to come up a lot in the future? He will come up. up yeah, he okay. will come up. All right. So I, I'm calling this episode uh, Joe Inea and the Friendly Dancers. And as always, we we did this on, uh, on the uh, Patreon recently. I have to apologize and say... Uh, Inea is the name that I'm going to butcher the most because <laughs> it's probably not said the way that I say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. And you can hate mail me all you want and and try to correct me, and eventually I'll say it the right way. But I'm going to say Inea, uh, which is E N E A. So everyone at home is like, no, why? You're not even close. Where are you getting that from? But I don't know, man. It sounds pretty convincing to me, but I am not Italian at all. So, so yeah, I'm not. I'm sure, I am also I'm sure not people a, with Italian descent are like, yeah, no, that's I am not, not Italian it. at all either. And and as I as I constantly have to explain to people, I I learn through reading, and when you learn through reading, you pronounce things yes. wrong. When they in an FBI file, when you read a name, they do not put in parentheses how the proper way to pronounce it is sorry not usually <laughs> sometimes they do huh? no that, no they i mean they never purposely do it but sometimes you'll kind of figure it out because they'll spell it wrong oh <laughs> because they'll spell it the way they think it should be spelled and oh, then, then you get a better idea of how it would sound so uh so we got we got joe i was gonna say joe so i don't butcher his name every time uh the first time joe comes to the public's attention is in september 1962 for the most minor of offenses. Um, but first, let's get a little bit of background on him. Joseph Frank Inea was born December 16th, 1931 to Jack Inea and Jenny Carbone or Carboni. Jack was a prominent mobster as well as other members of his family. He was a brother-in-law to Andrew DeSelvo, the man who sponsored Frank Belstry for Mafia membership. As far as I know, uh, Joe, the son, had no juvenile record. Uh, He was picked up in December 1953 and transported to Watertown for writing bad checks. Why was he writing bad checks in Watertown? (laughs) Watertown. I don't know. What came of this, uh, I don't know. I'm sure it wasn't much. Probably around this time is when he married Frances Legelbo, 
who was the half-sister of mobster pimp Frank LaGalba, who we haven't mentioned in a while now, um, but he was on a lot of our early episodes. I have no direct evidence of this, but given how close the Inea and LaGalba families were, I have to wonder if this was an arranged marriage. Like, it could just be they grew up together and, you know, they were high school sweethearts. Could be. But it was still fairly common at this time for there to be arranged marriages in the Italian community and especially in the mob. Okay. So that was one of my questions. So it's an it's both an Italian thing and a mob thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean I have I have instances as late as the nineteen sixties where people are still having their spouse chosen for them, which is bizarre, um, but it's just a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. November 29th, 1955, Jackie Nea, the father, um, was murdered and dumped in a ditch in Waukesha County. Um, we just covered Over this next, on yeah. the Patreon. Um, and also, uh, if you want to, you can pick up my book, Wonky <laughs> Mafia, Mobsters in the Heartland, where I devote an entire chapter to this murder. So, so that's fun. He's getting better at the self-promotion. Good job, Gavin. <laughs> yeah. Jack, at the time of his death, was 47. Joe, the son, was 23 years old. And Joe, not to give it away, we won't get there in this episode, but Joe is only going to make it to 44. Ooh. So he's not even going to live as long as his father. We do likely know who killed Jack, um, and for that, buy the book. Um, but the, <laughs> but the, the crime is officially unsolved. <laughs> Joe was arrested in September 1957 for battery and fined $50. Uh, he had been tending bar at the Melody Room in the Roosevelt Hotel and got into a scuffle with a man named John Lone. John Lone isn't anybody, just some bar patron. Mm-hmm. This is the first that we know of, of Joe associating with Frank Balistrieri because Frank is the owner of the Melody Room. Um, Frank was also a friend of the murdered Jackie Nea, so it's not surprising at all that he would have grown up uh, right. knowing him mm-hmm. joe through an attorney filed for bankruptcy in september 1961 he claimed that he received a hundred dollars per week working at gallagher's another balustrade place um and he owed a real estate company 580 dollars he owed 975 dollars in tavern rent he owed harry gromacki of H&G Amusement, $1,590 for a loan that he received. Harry Gromacki would later be murdered. We'll cover that mm-hmm. one eventually as well. Was he kind of like a loan shark type deal? He is, he is not. He okay. was He was involved in like jukeboxes. Okay. Why was he giving him just kind of an, like an outside business investment? Is that... I don't know no. what the loan was for. Okay. Um, And he received another loan from... Somebody who was a loan shark, Harry, okay. <laughs> Harry, Harry Kaminsky, who we've we've, we've talked, talked about, about a few times. Uh, he was involved with like the gay bar scene and things like that. Yep. Um, he owed $1,800 to him. So that really wasn't a loan shark situation. He got it legitimately, but Kaminsky's got a bad record. Uh, so his total debts were given as $8,200, um, while his assets were nothing more than the clothes on his back <laughs> and some household goods. Um, $8,000 doesn't sound like a ridiculous amount, but in 1961, like, that could make or break you. Right. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't get in, like, any major trouble for this, but this is just to give you an idea that Joe is not riding high here. Yep. 
But from what we know right now, he pretty much doesn't have any ties. Seems like he doesn't have ties to the mafia at all. It's pretty loose. I mean, his father was deep into it, and and he's a bartender for Frank Bellstreet. So he's definitely in that world. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's, as far as we know, not out there committing mob crimes. Uh, So Joe was interviewed at his home uh, in December 1961 by the FBI. He said he was a bartender at Gallagher's and had previously attended bar at Henry's, which is another mob-connected bar. Joe claimed to know nothing about Frank Balistrieri, saying he was only a bartender and paid no attention to other people's business. As far as he was concerned, Balistrieri had done nothing wrong and law enforcement was always just picking on him. <laughs> he had heard rumors that Balistrieri ordered the death of his father, but he had also heard rumors that others ordered the murder and did not think Balistrieri was behind it. <clears throat> I also personally do not think that he was behind it. Okay. Uh, Joe did say that business at Gallagher's was slow and he was considering getting another job because he could not support his wife and kids. September 1962, uh, here's, here's the incident that, that, that sparks this episode. It is very dumb. (laughs) Very dumb, huh? It is very dumb. (laughs) September 1962, Frank Bellstrieri and Joey Nea. Uh, were charged with allowing female employees to sit with a male patron at the downtowner bar. (laughs) Also charged were the two dancers, Patricia Bogg and Shirley Amber. And uh, given their ages, Patricia and Shirley could still be alive. So um, I'd love love to hear their stories as well. Yeah, that would be awesome to... So when you so basically, I'm taking this as being one of these things where the girls would just go and sit by, would just go sit by somebody and like they would buy it, the quote unquote a girl a drink, and that was just kind of the the fee for the girl sitting by them, and then is that kind of what that's you're basically thinking? exactly right. Okay, yeah. Police Sergeant Jerome Jagman had stopped in around one a.m. when he saw the dancers sitting. With a 52-year-old Milwaukee man and a 35-year-old Rockford salesman, the Rockford man admitted to buying Bog a peppermint schnapps after watching her dance. Like, that's that's seriously it. That's, that's the crime, is that the dancers sat down next to and people in the bar. Do they, what are they charged with, prostitution no 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 there's no prostitution and they're not even suggesting that yes yeah, so what what law like prevents you from being able to sit down next to somebody in a bar that that's just the <laughs> city ordinance you couldn't do it there were a lot of really weird city ordinances that i mean one time i don't think we mentioned i'm fact, I'm fairly confident we didn't mention this one time like frank bestory got fined because he didn't have his blinds open on his windows, like, correctly. In his house or, like, in a bar? In the something? bar. In the bar, really? In the bar. And and I'm like, why do you have to have your blinds open? Like, why is that a law? <laughs> but he got fined for it. Like, they had some really weird bar laws. Part of me, part of you always got to wonder if they just were passing some of these dumb laws as ways to be able to do things to bar owners and things like that, get them in trouble for things like give them a little flexibility. Like if they didn't like what a bar owner was doing, they could go in and, you know, charge them with something stupid to, you know. Yeah. 
like I don't get it. Like if if the crime was the dancers are soliciting the customers for something more than dancing, like okay, I get that. But that's not the crime, and that's not even what they're suggesting was happening here. Like they're literally just saying the the show was over and the dancers sat down. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's such a bizarre bizarre thing. Attorney James Shello, um, who at this point is the junior partner to Dominic Frenzy, uh, said, this is a personal vendetta on the part of the police department to destroy Frank Bellstreet's reputation. This whole thing is tantamount to a frame. Bellstreet expressed similar sentiments to the city attorney, saying, you were told to issue warrants. You're being part of a frame. You're not the honorable man I thought you were. The cases were scheduled for October 8th. Um, but we're not actually heard until the following spring. So this case dragged <laughs> on for months. <laughs> uh, Frank filed a motion with the court to get the trial moved out of the county, um, fearing that he would get bad publicity if it was held in Milwaukee. Uh, the judge in the case denied it. The judge is uh, Judge Chris Serafim, who, again, might recall from the gay bar episodes because it's the guy who really yeah. dislikes the gay bars. Mm-hmm. Finally, it comes to trial in April 1963, so let's see, that's September to April, that's like seven months, seven months to go to trial for this stupid thing, (laughs) and Frank is acquitted by a jury of allowing female dancers to sit by male patrons at the downtowner, Um, also acquitted, of course, is Joe and the two dancers. At this point... The FBI alleges, and I have nothing to back this up, the Judge Seraphim tipped the case in Bellstreet's favor by not granting the prosecution time to get a witness from Illinois. This is presumably the male uh, patron from Rockford, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. The jury deliberated for two whole hours. The prosecutor also alleged that he was threatened twice during the trial. Once by a spectator, whose name is in the record, but it's redacted, so I don't know who it is, mm-hmm. uh, who said, you won't be around to see the end of this case. <laughs> and once from the attorney, the defense attorney, who said, there are a lot of dead doctors and a lot of dead lawyers. and uh, You don't want to be one of them? Yeah, <laughs> he just, just kind of doesn't finish that sentence. <laughs> The district attorney declined to investigate these alleged threats, believing that at no point was the prosecutor in any real danger, so it wasn't worth looking into. A police inspector questioned a dozen courtroom spectators, and none of them said they had heard any of these things being said. So they weren't going to look into it any further. I don't know if this stuff <laughs> was said. And personally, like, this seems ridiculous to yes. me. To, like, threaten somebody over this thing was probably, like, a s- small fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, this is, like, this is the big thing here. It's, like, they're alleging threats are going on in the court. They're alleging the judge. And, and Judge Seraphim, although he was really hard on the gay bars, like, he was, he did have some corruptness in him. Yeah. So it wouldn't be out of the question for him to do it. But it's, like. Is it really tipping the case by not giving the prosecution time to get the Rockford guy in? They had seven months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, if you can't show up on that day, like, 
it's not like they really like didn't have the time to notify him or anything. So yeah, so this whole this whole thing comes to nothing. It gets dropped in the trial. Like I don't even know that any of these things claimed are true. Um, but they walk free of it, um, and soon after this, Joey Nair uh, leaves Frank Balistrieri's employment and opens up his own place called Joe's Spaghetti House, um, along with Walter Broca, uh, who was another Frank Balistrieri uh, employee. But uh, Joe's Spaghetti House is a whole other story. But yes, yeah, so like I said, this episode's super short, but it's basically I'm using this really, really dumb trial to introduce Joe into the... And so now is Joe going to become, in future episodes, will Joe become blatantly, obviously, very much in the depths of the mafia? Or does he kind of always skirt on the outsides like this, where he knows the people he's hanging out with them, but he's never really involved in anything big? Somewhere between the two. Somewhere, okay. So Joe does actually become a member of the mafia. He so, go he does the whole ceremony thing and he becomes a member. But I have no evidence of him ever doing anything major. No murders, no giant, you know, burglaries. Almost like he's more on the business side of the mafia than, right. than the, the violent side of the right. mafia. So like he gets in, but he's he's very low key guy. This is just a funny story because it's just like, like what a odd thing to charge to bring against them, and I can't even believe. Based on the sounds of it, like I feel like it, we're missing something in what you have here, mm-hmm. because based on what they charged him with, I'm surprised it ever got to court. That they just didn't look at it and they throw it out. But I guess you that's, like you that's said the law. Yeah, I suppose you said that this is a statute in Milwaukee yeah. that you can't have girls sitting next to guy <laughs> yeah, i mean it's not they it's a stupid thing to get charged with but it is actually how the law was written so it's not like they made up a a law to charge them with like it's on the books i don't know i'm i'm guessing it's probably not on the books anymore but and it's also interesting to me because so what you we kind of described there where they they sell a drink and the girl just hangs out with the guy. That's something you see overseas all the time. Oh, that's, why, that's why I, I could like envision what was happening is because I've seen it before. and But you don't see that in the U.S. So I wonder if there is still laws in place throughout the United States that just prevent you from being able to run that kind of business. I don't which, know. Like I don't really see it so much in Milwaukee, but there's in Chicago like history – you see what's called B girls, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the B stands for, but they—it's this really stupid scam where the girls in the bar go up to guys and they ask to buy get a drink bot for them. Yes, and then the bartender is in on it, so the bartender gives her like a ginger ale or something. Right. So the guys are paying like premium liquor prices for a ginger ale, so the bar's making money. Because this guy is like, ooh, I'm going to buy nice drinks for this pretty girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the extent of that scam. Like, I, I don't know where it goes. Like, again, it's not a prostitution thing. It's just a way for the bar to sell drinks that they're not really selling. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing I could see with it is is that it could be like a step towards prostitution. Mm-hmm. You know, because you start – these girls start hanging out with the guys – 
just well that's this, clearly in, what the guys think are yeah, at, yeah in the drinking yeah. but but it could also go that way where the you know eventually the girls are like well you know for such and such more we could do more or whatever yeah so and maybe that's why they have laws against it but it just it seems when when you talk about it it seems moronic like like i you can't go in and buy a drink <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's just it doesn't make sense, but Yeah, and and you're right, like maybe maybe like if I saw the actual like charges, mm-hmm. maybe somewhere in there the guy is like, "Ooh, I'm going to buy our peppermint schnapps and we'll see where this goes." You know, maybe something like that. But that isn't like the law. The the law isn't anything about that. The law is just the sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's so dumb. Yeah, I, I would almost think that it would be really fascinating to research this law to see what made people pass this law. Because I, you got to think that when they pass a law, I have the philosophy that governments are extremely lazy. So they don't <laughs> pass a law because for no reason. Yeah. You know, they had a reason for it. I just would really love to understand what that reason was in this situation. It's a good question. I mean, if I were to take a guess, I'm thinking this might just be one of those like weird moral laws where they're like, oh, it's a bar, so there's drinking. We don't want men and women sitting next to each other if they're not already together. Mm-hmm. It might be something really dumb like that. I don't know, um, but... But, I mean, keep in mind, for a very, very long time, women weren't allowed in bars at all. Yeah. So. And, and that could be the number one thing for it is is that whenever you're not allowed to do something and they start letting you do it, they baby step it. Yeah. You know, they always put a ton of restrictions on you when you first do it. And then eventually it just becomes, you know, it just becomes a date normal thing that nobody cares about. Yeah. So that's probably actually a very good It's a good point. question, though. Like, it would be curious to see what the actual, like, who passed Has this, this law? law. And for what rationality did they pass? Yeah, because some of these, some of the bar ordinances are really, really dumb. <laughs> so, all right, well, that's everybody's little meet Joe and Nea, or however we should be yeah, saying his yeah, name. Yeah, like I and- said, this was just, this was a thing that came up, and originally I thought about making it a patreon episode because it's so dumb and pointless but i was like no i can't do it because i this is a character that i i can't i can't bury behind the paywall because people are going to want to know who this guy (laughs) is so because his name is definitely going to come up and he's probably going to play a significant role in some stories or at least a significant enough role that you know yeah to just have his name pop up it wouldn't make sense so right right yeah so Cool. All right. Well, with that, we can wrap this episode up. As always, we do have a Patreon. Check that out at patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, or just jump over to MilwaukeeMafia.com and you can find a link on the page to get to it from there. And Gavin, where can people reach out to you at? They can email MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. They can check out MilwaukeeMafia.com or GavinSchmidt.com. I've just recently done some big dumps on uh, on the website. Um, as people, long-time listeners probably know, other people w- don't know and will be shocked to hear, I, I don't have internet at my house. <laughs> um, and, and He's so, a podcaster without any internet. <laughs> yeah, so I don't update the websites as much as I should. But I but I recently went and I put, like, I really cleared off my, my hard drive and dumped it all on there. So... Um, 
the websites are more updated now than they've been in a long time. So, so definitely check them out. Yeah. So if you haven't been over there in a while, check out because it seems like lots and lots of new content to uh, yeah. to look through. And what is that like? Mostly like FBI files or just mostly notes that you've put? It's primarily there? podcast notes. But if people want to like search through the stuff that we talk about on here and, and get like the full version, like I'm pretty thorough on these episodes, but I'm still skimming a little bit. So if people want a more thorough story or they want to like cross reference it with other stories they told in the past that they've forgotten about, the search feature on Milwaukee Mafia, on both of them, but on MilwaukeeMafia.com is fantastic. I mean, you start typing in a word and the drop box comes down with everything that that word appears in. So if you're looking up a specific name, it'll, it'll show you every episode that that name appeared in. It's a really, really darn good website. So whoever made that website, you did a great job. Good job. It wasn't me. So It wasn't me either. <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, with that, we'll wrap this one up. And, and also, you should jump just jump over to that Milwaukee Mafia and check out Gavin's books because there are a lot of books. That Gavin writes books on a pretty diverse selection of topics, I yeah, would say. Yeah, that's fair. And so you might find something on there that, you know, we don't talk about a lot on this podcast, but might be of interest to you. So Jeff, definitely check that out as well. Yeah, if you want to do that, I mean, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin doesn't care, but, but, but I don't if care. you want to like, do it, I like when the royalty checks come in, but I don't. But I don't push it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we'll see everybody next week for a Patreon, and in two weeks with a regular mafia 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 episode. Yeah. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.